0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman, And I'm Michael. Since the financial crisis, the UK stock market has lagged global indices and struggled to attract new companies. Whereas the US and other markets have surged ahead over the past decade, the UK has been stuck with unloved companies and meagre returns.
1: I want to know the reasons behind the persistent underperformance and the prospects for a rebound. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask how can a stock be listed on two exchanges and does it matter which one I buy? Okay, let's get into it. In 2006, the companies listed in the UK market were worth over 10% of the global stock market. And today, that's down to less than 4%. Roman, is it fair to say the UK stock market has had a tough time of it?
0: Well, I think a lot of the pain has been self-inflicted, and a lot of it is due to the sector composition of the UK. That's the driving force behind the diminishing of the UK market.
1: What do you mean by the sector composition?
0: So every index that you look at, so let's say the FTSE 100, you can break it down into the industries of the companies in the index so the sector composition is the percentage which is in each of those different industries. Now, for the UK, there's a really unusual composition when you compare it with developed markets across the world. And that composition has been very unfavourable, is a kind way of reading it, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when it comes to capital growth for the UK.
1: So as I understand it, it's that we have a lot of pharmaceuticals and banks and miners, as in resource miners, but not a lot of tech companies. Is that a fair characterization?
0: Yeah, I've actually run some of the numbers and there's a huge tilt in the UK away from information technology. In fact, it's a 20% underweight. Effectively, it's got zero information technology in the UK index. And this is looking at MSCI UK versus MSCI World, which is just developed markets. And we also have a huge overweight in consumer staples. So, for example, that would be companies like Unilever, Diageo, British American Tobacco. These are kind of everyday products, if you like, that we just buy all the time. So we have, for some reason, a lot of consumer staples Also lots of energy, so we have a 9% overweight in energy, as you said, and materials, so
1: that's mining. It's like a stock market from the 80s, isn't it? (laughs) It's just frozen in time.
0: (laughs) But of course, if you look at why America's been so successful, their stock market over the last decade, it's been very much down to tech. Mega companies like Apple, Microsoft, Google have managed to completely dominate the world and generate huge revenues globally. And also switch from essentially unprofitable growth companies, but which turned into cash juggernauts because they switched to advertising. Because once they had people's attention via email or via shiny little glass boxes, Apple, or via really boring technology, which every office uses, Microsoft. Once they had that attention, they could actually switch to other services like Amazon Web Services or advertising on Google. So all of these things have been monetized very effectively. They've effectively got a world monopoly in many cases, or at least first mover advantage. And they've just monetized that so well. And yet the UK was just nowhere to be seen.
1: Are we being unfair on the UK here? Is this a UK problem or is it just America versus the rest of the developed world?
0: I think you're right. I think it is America versus the rest of the developed world. If you just look at the US outperformance versus every other market, it has been spectacular. But there have been other things which have helped the US, a very cheap cost of funding, but that's also been true elsewhere, I have to say. But also a very effective way of funding new companies via venture capital. So there's a huge kind of system that's set up now in the US where we have serial entrepreneurs, we have a huge amount of capital willing to back them and help them develop those ideas and scale them. So that's been an incredibly effective system in creating these mega companies.
1: I think, yeah, we don't have that in the UK. There's also a cultural difference, isn't there? As in, It seems to me that American entrepreneurs are allowed to fail. Like you, you can have a go, come up short, and then have another go. Whereas in the UK, we quite like it when someone comes down a peg or two, we won't give them another chance. That's right.
0: Yeah. There is absolutely no forgiveness for failure here. For example, I remember during the dot-com boom, there were lots of exciting companies. One of my friends went off to start something called Beans.com, which was like an early online currency. Really unfortunate name, (laughs) okay?
1: It was a free runner to cryptocurrency. Not
0: really. I mean, it was more like shopping vouchers than cryptocurrency, but...
1: Such a UK version of cryptocurrency. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Shopping vouchers.
0: But, you know, they just imploded and disappeared without a trace. So I think, you know, we're really good at coming up with technological ideas. You know, we we're one of the first people to develop things like...
1: The internet.
0: Yeah, the internet. And <laughs> right. Things like holograms. You know, we, we really were at the forefront. But when it comes to commercialising it and scaling it and monetizing the ideas, we don't seem to have all of our ducks
1: in a row. That's definitely true. And it's feeds through into startups that list or more to the point don't list on the London Stock Exchange. So in two thousand and five, London hosted twenty percent of the world's IPOs. That's, you know, a big chunk of it. Whereas last year, 2021, it was only four percent. It's come down massively. And if you're a tech company, why would you list in the UK? You're going to go to America, aren't you?
0: Yeah, it's so much of a deeper market. And people are willing to put their capital at risk much more readily. And they do let you fail. So there is this culture which actually welcomes entrepreneurs rather than kind of welcoming them initially. And then if something goes wrong, you know, you're on your own. I think that's one of the reasons why the US is so successful. There's another reason, which I think is slightly unfortunate for the UK, which is the huge preference for income in the UK market.
1: And when you say income, you mean dividend?
0: Yeah, that means a preference for dividends rather than capital growth. Because remember, when you buy a stock, you've got two sources of profit. One of them is capital gain. So that's the price going up. So you buy at a low price, you sell at a high price. And the other source of return is the income on the stock. So the total return is the sum of those two, capital gain and income.
1: And in the UK, we've much preferred income, is that right?
0: Massively. And there's a really nice quote from the chair of Marshall Waste. This is Paul Marshall. Back in 2021, he wrote a letter to the FT, which was just beautiful. And he said, The UK stock market is becoming a global backwater as US and Chinese markets forge ahead. And he says how it's really not taken part in this huge rally we've had since 2015. And he said there are homegrown reasons for the UK's market decline. None is more peculiar or farcical than the role of income funds, the UK fund management sector's signature dish. So he's pretty much putting the blame down to the actual fund managers who have a huge preference for income in the UK.
1: But why do they have a preference for income? If we should be neutral as to whether the total return comes from income or capital appreciation.
0: Well, the way he puts it is that British income fund managers believe they have a mission to protect the incomes of pensioners. So it's this model of, you know, you don't kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. If you've got a stock which is going to pay you a dividend, you never have to sell any of the stock in order to receive an income. So you buy, I don't know, standard chartered, a high dividend payer, and you just hold on to it and never sell the stock and just receive the income. So you're essentially milking the company dry of any of its profits or most of its profits.
1: And that holds back business investment then, I guess.
0: Well, that's the metaphor. Yeah, that's the mental metaphor for a lot of pension funds and a lot of investors in the UK. I don't want to take a risk. I'm just going to buy the stock, take its income. And he points out that this is a form of financial decadence and it discourages capital investment and it stifles growth and productivity. Whereas you compare that to the US, where the dividend payout ratio, which is the proportion of profits paid to shareholders, is pretty low. And the dividend yield, which is the actual dividend payments over the previous year, say, divided by the price of the index, is also very low. So in the UK, typically we pay out about 4% dividend yield. So if you put £100 into the market, you'll get about £4 every year. Whereas in the US, it's never really above 2%. Where's that money going? Well, it's going back into the company to grow the earnings.
1: But is it really a case that a lot of the companies on the UK market are kind of older companies, mature companies, where... They've gone past their high growth phase and now they are just cash cows to be milked.
0: Well, I think there is innovation in the UK. You know, We do have a venture capital system and there's a whole tax benefit of investing in things called venture capital trusts, which should actually make our industry much more dynamic and really should provide the capital to do that, to get the innovations, to get the growth of future Apple's and Google's. But somehow it breaks down between the venture capital stage and the scaling up to the mega cap stage. So somehow it's broken somewhere between those two points. But I'm not sure where the fault lies. But in the UK, we've got the AIM market, which is kind of like a penny stock market for these more speculative companies, which aren't so big, which is sort of micro caps. But I think once you get onto the big boys indices, you know, the FTSE 100, the FTSE 250, then you do have this shift in sentiment to reward companies which pay out a high dividend.
1: It's part of the issue that the UK market has had quite restrictive rules around how shares can be listed. So I know it was basically the only market in the developed world which didn't allow dual class shares.
0: I think think you're right. I think it does have very strict rules. But there's nothing in the rules which says you have to pay out a certain amount of income or you can't favour growth over high dividend payouts. There's nothing that says that.
1: Yeah, but if you want growth, you've got to attract the growthy companies and we haven't been doing that. And part of the reason is, you know, if you're um, an entrepreneur who's building this next amazing, innovative company, you want to retain control, even if you're going to the public market to raise finance, right? And they do that through a dual class share. So they move away from the principle of one share, one vote. They sell shares, but they keep the majority of votes. Whereas we haven't allowed that until recently. I think we're starting to change the rules.
0: I'm not convinced that would make a difference. You know, I don't think that it's to do with governance. I think it's simply because of the preference of the fund managers themselves. So if you're going to create a company and you want to keep control of the company, maybe that would favour the US over the UK. But a lot of the entrepreneurs I've spoken to in the past, they'd rather have a smaller slice of a big company than a big slice of a small company. So they're willing to give up that control in order to get capital to grow their company and make it into a really huge enterprise.
1: But you can have both. If you're Zuckerberg, you can list on the US market, give up the majority of Facebook, but still have the controlling votes.
0: You might be able to do both. But generally, the founders are usually awful managers. You know, once you reach a certain point, you know, like look at Jack Dorsey. I think he's kind of a really good example of why founders may not be good guardians of the company once it reaches a certain critical stage. I don't buy the idea that having the person who founded it stay in control of it is necessarily a good idea. You look at Elon Musk and Tesla, I mean, it's incredible what he's achieved to create something like Tesla. But now we've got to the stage where he's probably a liability. Having him in control of the production side of things and the actual scaling of the automation of the creation of the cars may be okay. But having him in charge of the overall company... PR. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) PR. It's it's a big mistake, right? He's a bit of a loose cannon. So I'm not convinced that it's the lack of allowing the founders to keep control which is the reason why the UK has not really been a popular destination.
1: I mean, there was a government review which identified this as one of the potential causes, and they have updated the listing rules now, which allows some dual class shares, but it's more of a golden share thing, right, where it has a sunset clause of five years. But anyway, I agree that it's not going to make a huge difference, but the government and the City of London's been scrabbling around trying to find the reasons.
0: I actually went back further in time using Dimson, Marsh and Staunton's data And if you go back to 1900, the UK made up 24% of global markets, global equity markets. The glory days. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But the sun has set on the British equity empire, that's for sure. And at that time, the US was only 15% of global equity markets. So now if you look at global market cap, the MSCI World Index is $54 trillion. And that represents all of the developed market equity in the world, or much of it. And the UK is just $2.4 trillion. And for comparison, the market cap of Apple is also $2.4 trillion. Right. So the entire UK market, if you add it all up, is roughly the size of Apple.
1: Would you rather live in the UK or in Apple, in Cupertino, <laughs> <laughs> in their big round spaceship of a headquarters?
0: It is shocking, isn't it? I think if you compare those two things, a single company versus a whole country's equity market. So I think this isn't a short-term problem, this is something which has been gradually happening over time, as the US is much better at growing its capital markets, or at least has been, and the UK simply failed to do that for over a century. And effectively we've become irrelevant on the world stage, certainly in terms of the equity market.
1: Oh, man, not just in terms of the equity market Roman. I it's all going wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think, you know, culturally, we still punch above our weight. That's true. If you look at things like movies or... Music. Music, science, you know, we still do very well for such a small country. And in terms of, you know, legacy, it's incredible what we've achieved. Much of it positive. I mean, not all positive, clearly. But things like the English legal system, which is very similar to the US one, of course, because they inherited a lot of the precepts.
1: Yeah, and we've got a very strong university system for a country our size. And we've got the benefit of the English language, which is the language of business. You know, I want to start singing Royal Britannia, but you know, we have got some we have got some advantages. So maybe we can turn it around.
0: Yeah. I think the City of London also, you know, has been incredibly successful. And yet, you know, it seems really odd to me that we seem to like hating bankers in the UK, even though it's our most successful story in terms of GDP growth, in terms of how we're really good at something. <laughs> but whenever we can possibly criticise the banking system or talk about greedy bankers, you see that all over the press. When I really think you should be celebrating the banking success story in the UK. Mm. Investment banking is just something we're very good at.
1: Yeah, there's something about bankers. Steady. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't the reason that it's a problem, perhaps, that the banking industry got so big in the UK, it was attracting people from other industries like physics to go and work in the city, Robin, you know anything about that? (laughs) (laughs) Where they should have been making innovative companies.
0: You know, you, you can still go off and make an innovative company after that, for example, PensionCraft, but it doesn't have to be in that order. You know, I think actually being part of the financial markets with the investment bank actually taught me a great deal about how capital's raised, how companies are financed, how companies become profitable and how they scale.
1: So now you just bootstrap the whole thing <laughs> with your own money. Well, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there's a risk, right, if you take money from other people. But, you know, in the future, who knows? But I think for the UK, it is that much more difficult to actually do that scaling process. And just speaking to many people, they've simply gone to the US to do that. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And I think this momentum of having such a huge market in the US with such a readily available pool of capital, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon.
1: I think it's true to say that the UK companies have a lower valuation than equivalent companies in the US and in other markets. And that has made them attractive takeover targets for private equity and foreign investors.
0: But if you look at the CAPE ratio, so that would be the price of the UK equity market divided by the profits that's generated over a previous 10-year period, that gives you a valuation measure. And that's always at a discount to that of the US. It's been historically the case that... You know, even since 1980, most of the time, almost all of the time, in fact, we've been cheaper.
1: Part of that is because we have kind of value companies, right, who are not these growth companies. But I think even if you adjust for that factor tilt, our companies are valued lower than their equivalents.
0: But certainly at the moment, that's true. You know, the US shot up in terms of valuations since 2020 after we had that huge rally. And really, it's still not normalised. It's still relatively expensive relative to other countries, including the
1: UK. Some people have suggested that part of the reason UK companies have struggled to grow so quickly is a culture of poor management. I saw one survey which said there were 2.4 million accidental managers. They termed it like people who have been promoted enough that they're now managing a team, but have had no formal training in the specific skills required to get people to perform their best.
0: Yeah, it was always kind of interesting. I worked for a US company for a while and I've got to say, you know, I wasn't that impressed impressed with their management skills. I won't say who it was. I think what always amazed me was that the US system is very feudal. Everybody talks about democracy, but the minute you walk into the office, you've got this very hierarchical structure where you've got senior management... Kind of like the lords, and then you've got the kind of doers who are the serfs. Scum, just the peasants,
1: us on the factory floor. (laughs)
0: Well, that's what it's like with ridiculous pay differences between the senior management and the staff, where it's just like not even vaguely recognizable, you know, how much the senior management is paid relative to the staff. So, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a good way to run a company. I think a more kind of egalitarian system seems to be the new model. Certainly with new tech companies, there's a much flatter structure where you have small teams. I think the way Jeff Bezos described it was that teams should only be big enough such that you can feed them with two pizzas. So I thought that was a, I thought that was a great way
1: to put it. Yeah, but maybe you just give them a very small amount of pizza. Maybe that
0: was just cost-cutting, I don't know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Bezos in his tight pockets.
0: But I've seen other tech companies describe it that way, where they find that for creativity, small teams are very effective
1: And we do have a productivity problem in the UK. There's no getting around that.
0: Yep, and that's something that, again, has been around for a long time. The trouble is there's no easy
1: way to improve productivity, is there? I mean, the government can invest in infrastructure and things like that and training, but there's no magic button.
0: Well, the thing about productivity is, think about it in terms of, you know, if somebody is a hairdresser, you know, their productivity is quite low. If they're someone who writes software, the productivity is quite high. Not all of us can be software developers, obviously, but this is why education is seen as a way to improve long-term productivity growth. So we'd have more high value-add industries, larger proportions of people in those industries. More bankers. Well, I mean, bankers is just one example, but there are lots such as tech companies or maybe something like, I can't think of another, can you? (laughs) Plumbers, they're paid very well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's lots. You can improve the productivity for most industries on a relative basis. But
0: the point is, it's education that's required,
1: or automation, right?
0: Well, I guess automation is another way to it, but that's not great for the workers themselves.
1: Yeah, but we're talking about the stock market, <laughs> investors. Well,
0: you know, I think from the point of view of the company, if you've got highly productive employees, I you pay them a lot. The reason why you do that is because they produce a lot and they can sell a lot of stuff which also makes the company profitable. So I'd rather have that than just a kind of huge assembly line where you know, <laughs> there are robots effectively producing all the goods. But that is another way to get to productivity. The only question is how much of that productivity goes to the company, how much of the earnings go to the company, and how much of it goes to its employees.
1: Okay. Is there an elephant in the room here, Robin? Because when I looked at a lot of the graphs, there was a turning point for valuations around 2016, where they did take a bit of a leg down in the UK. And I don't know what happened in 2016. I don't think I know either. (laughs) Well, there was a bit of a vote we all had, and it went 52-48. And we've managed to get through 22 episodes of this show without mentioning Brexit, but we have to do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I think from the point of view of GDP growth, and ultimately that affects things like interest rates, but also the strength of the currency, it has had a negative impact. But it's very hard now to disassociate that from the effects of the pandemic. You know, we've come through the pandemic not as strongly as other countries. And if you look at the GDP growth at the moment in the UK, we certainly are lagging other countries. But I think it is difficult to dissociate the pandemic effects from the Brexit
1: effects. On GDP growth, yes. But I think we have seen heightened political risk foreign investors might see in the UK. And that's caused them to kind of see it as a flyover market. Various different terms used to describe it, none of them good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons why companies were willing to list in the UK was to get access to the European market. The London market was great because it had English law and it had a lot of expertise in financial markets, those bankers again. So, you know, it was great from the point of view of someone from the USA that wanted to list in Europe. But now if you want to get access to the European market, where would you list? Not in the UK. And the European market is a very big one. It's the biggest one in the world. So I think that's another reason why the UK market has made itself less attractive, the UK equity market, because you no longer have this kind of bridging effect where people would list here to get access to Europe and the European market.
1: And I think the point with Brexit is it's not over, right? It's all unfolding as we speak. It's going to be negotiated and renegotiated every year for the next decade. And, you know, it does put a question mark over the trading arrangements of the UK.
0: Yeah, for trade, it's been little short of a disaster, I'd say. From the point of view of capital investment, also, it's been atrocious since the Brexit vote and just before. So, of course, if companies want to grow, they want to reinvest back into the company. For whatever reason that capital investment has just literally plummeted. So I think from the point of view of earnings growth in the future that is very worrying in the UK. I mean I've spoken to people who work in the industry, the food industry, who tell me about all the paperwork that's now required simply to, you know, move fish from Europe to the UK or vice versa.
1: I'd just make the fish swim there themselves. <laughs>
0: So you could herd the fish from the grand banks to the right place and then extract them. Yeah, that would be great.
1: Oh, I feel like we've probably just lost 50% of our audience talking about Brexit. (laughs) Whatever we say, we should probably talk about Israel, Palestine and trans rights next. (laughs) I mean, I think as a UK investor, my question would be, does it really matter that the UK stock market has had a tough time of it and is struggling Because we can invest globally in any country. Like, who cares?
0: Yeah, and that's what many people do. You know, we don't really have a choice. If you buy a global index, you are buying mostly foreign stocks, mostly US stocks. In fact, the global equity market is to first order a US equity market. So if we look at the MSCI ACQUI index, which is an entire global equity market index, including emerging markets, the US is currently about 61% so really, any kind of global investor, if you buy a global equity index, you are buying the US. And as you say, you don't have to stick to the UK. We don't have capital controls. So let's just hope that <laughs> that remains the case. I mean, just seeing some of the government policies at the moment, it just makes me think, hmm, is that on the cards?
1: But there is a phenomenon called home country bias, where investors are more likely to overweight their home market. And that's probably affected people's returns in the UK.
0: Yeah, I speak to a lot of people who have pensions in the UK. And of course, if you look at the composition of it, there's a huge bias. You know, you get sometimes weightings which are 40, 50% UK, if not more, despite the fact that it's such a small and underperforming market.
1: And the fact that their prospects are already tied to the UK economy in many ways. You know, they probably have a house in the UK, a job in the UK and all their investments in the UK.
0: Not good. Yeah, you're already long UK if you live here. So, like you say, (laughs) I think you're right. It is great that we now can diversify. So even if, let's say, inflation is much worse here than it is, say, in Europe, then that's not necessarily a problem if that's going to be a drag on the economy if you can invest in those countries where the economic situation isn't as bad.
1: So there's a FTSE Russell study from 2018 which looks at Different investors in different countries around the world and how they allocate capital. What overweight do they give their domestic market? So in the UK, it found that investors give a roughly six times overweight to UK stocks. So instead of the sort of 4 or 5%, it's up over 30%, which is kind of crazy. I mean, it's not as crazy as Australia, which is around 2% of global equity markets. And Australian investors have over 50% of their allocation to Australia, 26 times overweight. So we're, we're not the worst. I don't know what's going on in Australia. They just love their mining companies, I guess.
0: Well, I do speak to Australian clients, and they tend to focus much more on property as an investment because the whole political system is very much geared towards favouring that
1: It seems like every country on this study does have a domestic bias, but it varies hugely in the scale of it. So in the US, the bias is small, just 1.2 times.
0: But I think the way to understand these tilts is, you know, why would market cap weighting make sense? This is an episode we've done before, but essentially it's down to liquidity. And the cost of tracking an index. So if you buy more of the most liquid markets, the largest ones, then the actual cost of running the fund is much lower. So that's why market cap weighting is usually the way that most of these indices are run. Because you buy more of the liquid stocks, which are cheaper to trade. And that cheapness is passed on to you as an investor.
1: And just intuitively, it doesn't make sense to me to have like the same weighting for the UK as you would for the US. The US is much bigger with many more companies. It's like lots of economies joined together, right? I mean, one
0: argument against it is that it favours past success, because if a company has grown massively or a country's market cap has grown massively, then they'll have a large market cap and you'll buy more of that country. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to outperform in future. And so, you know, I've said bad things about the UK's equity return.
1: Not this year. It's done better this year.
0: Well, I'm getting there. <laughs> so I've got total return data. So this takes income into account as well as capital gain. And this goes back to 2009 for the US. And that shows that the UK return has been 7.8% versus 135 for the US. And this is just after a big sell-off in the US. We're making this on 14th of June, 2022. So certainly over the last decade, the last 12 years, it has been atrocious, the UK, even in total return terms, where you account for the dividend that it pays, which is very large. But, and this might be the turning point, right? So (laughs) since the beginning of this year, since the beginning of 2022, the UK, the FTSE 100 total return, is only down by 2%.
1: Rule Britannia. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the best news we can be, isn't it? It's like our fall is less dramatic than other countries right now. Well,
0: compared to the US, you know, that's down by... Uh, 20%. 22%, yeah. So this year, the UK pretty much held up But of course, you know, it came off a kind of lackluster period. And it does tend to have a factor tilt, which is low volatility. UK stocks tend to be less wiggly in terms of their price action compared to the US.
1: Yeah. And it also has an energy overweight, which has supported it somewhat. Yeah. So
0: energy, materials, that's been a brilliant overweight, underweight tech, because, you know, we've seen the spec tech wreck this year. So I think having that tilt has certainly helped the UK, you know, and value is another tilt.
1: So seriously, could this be a rotation which benefits the UK in the long term? Like, is this rotation from growth to value going to bring the UK performance back up?
0: I think that's a possibility. And I can kind of sketch out a scenario in which that might be true. So I think one way to characterize the last decade is a virtual decade, right? Where software and people who create software and can scale software solutions have really dominated. It's a high margin industry and the US has just been really successful at it. Looking forward to the next decade, maybe it'll be the decade of stuff. So instead of making virtual things, islands in the sky, where we all live, like the metaverse, instead of that we'll be making technically innovative physical objects which allow us to interact with the world more effectively, more cheaply, more efficiently, but which require physical things. Commodities. Commodities and energy would be another one. So if you can generate that cleanly, all the better. But I think over the next decade, it'll take a while to wean us off fossil fuels. So I suspect any kind of commodity intensity will be an outcome of this shift, if it is real. And I think that is interesting. I mean, if you look at some things like Elon Musk and what he's doing as a kind of pathfinder industry, he's making stuff. You know, he's making rockets which can carry stuff from the surface of the Earth into space very cheaply at a low cost. He's making electric vehicles that can carry stuff, us, from place to place.
1: He's making tweets, which annoy me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So maybe this is the new model. You know, we have stuff makers, and so, you know, the UK's tilt will probably be helpful. Unfortunately, when it comes to manufacturing, that's when, again, you know, we seem to fall down. You know, when we have the car industry in the UK used to be huge, but of course that shrank away almost to nothing.
1: Yeah, you say we might benefit from the move to stuff, but really we just own other people's stuff, don't we?
0: But that is a business model, right? So, for example, Apple doesn't really make stuff. It designs stuff. It sources that stuff from elsewhere. And then it packages that stuff together. It kind of builds it together. And it's still very profitable. And it does the marketing and, you know, polo necks, cheering reporters. You know, all of that it does very well. But it doesn't really have to think about making the stuff. It just outsources that to China. You know, that kind of model could be something that the UK could do pretty well. Because we're good at the ideas side. We're good at the marketing side, probably. So I think we could build companies which are successful, like Apple, It's just a question of scale and getting the capital together to kind of achieve it. So maybe this is it. Maybe this is the renaissance. You know, we'll see a new resurgence of UK industry. I hope so, you know, because I do love the country and I I do hope that we do well.
1: Yeah, I would love to see it go well. It's just, I don't know, I'm a little sceptical about it, given who's in power. But anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that there's only so much that politicians can do to destroy creativity and the kind of innovative spirit of, of people in the country. But, you know, ultimately, I think the UK is very creative and, you know, very well educated as a society on the whole. So I think, you know, all the bits are in place to actually make this happen. It's just the job of politicians not to stand in the way, I think. And maybe there is a kind of cultural shift that's required as well to favor innovation and growth and to put capital to work to build these new innovative industries. And if that's in place, I think that would be the final piece of the puzzle. Let's just hope it happens. Pensioncraft has members from all over the world, not just the UK. And it's often interesting that domestic bias is common to each of those markets. So if you want to learn about global diversification and its benefits, why not join us on Pensioncraft? You can do that on our website, PensionCraft.com.
1: Okay, today's dumb question of the week is how can a stock be listed on two different stock exchanges? And as an investor, does it matter which one I buy? The
0: answer is no. It doesn't really matter where the location is. The reason why is that if it is listed on two exchanges, the only difference will be the currency, usually. So if you adjust for that and some of the costs of the dual listing, then effectively the price will be identical. They'll track each other almost perfectly once you make that currency adjustment. Because, of course, that makes sense. If you're buying the same thing, why would it trade at a different price? you're getting access to the same business. So if there is an arbitrageur, and there are many of them out there, they can just step in and trade the difference and bring the prices back into line.
1: So what's the point then? Why do we have it on two exchanges if it's just the same thing?
0: Okay, so let's say we've got a multinational company, Pensioncraft, and you want to raise capital. Well, our nice friendly bankers will approach us from the debt capital markets desk, and they'll give us a nice shiny prezo, and they'll say, look, If you list in New York, this is what market you'll have access to. And these are the benefits. If you list in London, here are the benefits. But look, you could do both. Of course, that comes with a higher cost, because when you list on an exchange, you have to pay. You also have to report the accounts in the accounting standard of that country. So that's going to introduce an extra cost if you list in more than one place. But what it does mean is you have access to more capital. US investors, UK investors, or you could list in China as well. So usually what companies do is they'll list where they're kind of locally relevant and where people are recognising their own brand.
1: Is that because of the home country bias? Because you say, okay, you could list in the US and the UK or Germany, for example... But, you know, US investors can buy companies on the UK stock exchange and vice versa. So is it just because of that home bias that you're sort of getting two lots of home bias, effectively?
0: And familiarity. I mean, if people are buying single stocks, which they probably shouldn't, not for most of their portfolio, but if they are, what are they going to buy? Are they going to buy a company they've never heard of? Or are they going to buy the company where they do their grocery shopping? You know, there's a huge barrier to overcome when you buy a stock of familiarity and people are much more likely I think to buy familiar stocks so it makes the whole marketing exercise much easier if there is that familiarity. A nice example of this is Rio Tinto so this is a mining company and its primary listing is in London so it trades on the London Stock Exchange but if you're a US investor and you want to buy Rio Tinto stocks you'll do it via something called an American Depository Receipt or an ADR So the idea there is that this ADR trades on the New York Stock Exchange, NYSEE, and for every ADR that you buy, it's just as if you held one stock on the London Stock Exchange, except that it trades in dollars, and you get the voting rights, you get the dividends, everything you'd get from owning the stock in London, but with the convenience of being quoted in dollars and traded on your local exchange.
1: But technically, you don't actually own the stock, right? There's a kind of bank set in between which owns the stock in London and is listing it for you in the US.
0: Yeah, so there is a custodian bank, and that's J.P. Morgan Chase. So they're the ones that hold the stocks in trust. So you're right, you're not directly owning the stocks. You've just got to have faith in the system that, you know, that linkage won't be broken.
1: And you have to tell JP Morgan Chase how to vote with your <laughs> voting rights.
0: That's how it works. You have to tell them what you want them to do, and they go off and vote for you.
1: So is there a cost involved in that, presumably?
0: There is a cost, but it's actually picked up by the company itself. It's a kind of a cost-effective way of, of trading non-US stocks if you want access to them.
1: Interesting, because I've heard there are kind of three main different ways of getting these stocks listed on two exchanges. There's a dual listing, which is, as I understand it, separate legal entities as part of the same group. A cross-listing, where it's the same share, so you could buy it on one stock exchange and sell, literally sell that same share on another stock exchange. And like you say, depository receipts, which are this kind of middleman system.
0: And Rio is a great example because it has both. So as well as the ADRs and, of course, the London Stock Exchange stocks, It's also got an entity which is called Rio Tinto Limited that's actually legally present in Australia and it trades on the Australian Securities Exchange. You know, they've got 400 million stocks which are publicly held. Again, it gives you access to all the same stuff that you'd get if you owned a stock on the London Stock Exchange, say.
1: Rio Tinto is just sleeping around everywhere.
0: Well, this is where they have a lot of their operations. So if you live in Australia, probably, you know, you'd be aware of Rio Tinto because, you know, they're digging up your dirt and selling it to China. So people are very aware of the company. So it's listed where it makes sense to list.
1: Like you said, the primary benefit is liquidity and access to greater capital markets by listing in more than one place and potentially greater marketing effects from being present on more than one domestic market. And I guess another benefit might be that it trades throughout the day. If you're listed in Australia, UK and America, you're basically always open somewhere.
0: But I bet at the moment they're wishing that wasn't true. You know, yeah. with equity market's tanking, you're just thinking,
1: oh, please don't open again. And I guess it's not just for stocks either, is it? Funds sometimes have dual listings.
0: Yeah, so for example, for an ETF, if they want to market it in multiple countries, and that makes a lot more sense than single stocks in a way, Essentially, the ETF is just a portfolio of stocks anyway, so I think listing one of these ETFs on multiple markets actually makes a lot of sense. But again, it makes no difference which one you buy, you just choose the one which is on your local exchange.
1: I guess the only potential difference is where it's listed might affect any government guarantees that are given if there's fraud in the ETF management or something like that.
0: So regulatory differences, certainly, and tax differences, that's another thing to consider. So let's say that the companies pay a dividend. The withholding tax depends on two things, the country where the dividend's paid and the domicile of the fund. So if you list in Ireland, which many ETFs are, you'll have different tax treatment than if you're listed in, say, Luxembourg, which is another very frequent domicile for funds. So really, the tax situation, I'd say, probably from the investor's viewpoint, is more important.
1: Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Keep sending us your questions at mhr at pensioncraft.com and we'll tackle them in the coming episodes. And
0: do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses
1: and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.